Mark 2.23, it says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has been coming into increasing conflict with the self-appointed religious leadership. By the way, if you're going to serve the Lord, don't appoint yourself. Let Him put you where He wants you to be, and He will. Every willing heart will find a place of service to the Lord. But these leaders have been becoming more disenchanted with Jesus' ministry the longer He's around. He started out well, casting out demons and healing many who were ill or afflicted, and his fame spread. But then he declared a man's sins forgiven, which these leaders considered blasphemous. He started hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people, tax collectors and sinners. And he disdained their religious traditions and practices because he did not observe their fasting schedule. He's just not fitting in with their idea of the messianic role. The conflict is about to ramp up big time. And the latest conflict involves the Sabbath. You know, God commanded Israel to observe a day of rest every week on the seventh day. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, part of the Ten Commandments. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day. Of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it and made it holy, set it apart. God created for six days and rested on the seventh as an example to man. He could have done it instantly, but he didn't. God never needs to rest, of course, but man in his fallen state does need times of rest. You can expand that word rest to restoration because that's what happens, or the idea that it should happen. So this main idea is to keep the day holy to the Lord, that is, set apart for his purposes. As part of that, the Israelites were to do no work on this day, the basis being that God worked for six days in creation and rested on the seventh day. The issue became what constituted work and what was thereby prohibited. How strict should it be? In Numbers 15, sometime after this Sabbath command was given, in verse 32, It says, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. So he no doubt wanted to build a fire or something. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him under guard because it had not been explained what what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. 
So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. This probably doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling about God. He can take it. God's major objective is not to make you feel good about him. His objective is to save you from eternal destruction. Now, if you walk with him, you'll have warm, fuzzy feelings about him, at least at times. But that might change when he begins his construction project, making you into the image of his son. He starts cracking open your sternum for open heart surgery. You might not feel warm and fuzzy about that. But he's faithful. He's promised to carry this out. And you're going to love the end product. So this execution of this man was an early example to Israel that the Lord meant what he said. He's serious about his commandments. He's holy. And his holiness is to be recognized and maintained among those who claim to follow him. Not everyone who ever broke the Sabbath was stoned. There is another issue here. This event happens in a context. The Lord had just commanded them regarding presumptuous sin. It's in Numbers 15:28, a little bit before where we read. He says, So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native-born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously, that is, he sins deliberately and rebelliously, whether he's a native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 31, because he has despised the word of the Lord. In other words, this person says, I don't care what God says. This is what I'm going to do. And he's broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Similar is the case of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, they fall down dead immediately when confronted and maintaining that lie. But not everyone who lied, even to God, is struck down dead. An example was set early for those who followed after. And in Acts 5.11, at the end of that episode, it says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Or think of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who were turned into crispy critters when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the tabernacle. The message, the Lord's serious when he commands proper worship in his house. Again, an example was set early so that the Lord, that the Lord means business. God's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He forgives iniquity and trespass. But we do not want to take his goodness for granted. We show him godly fear or reverence. So in this instance, we read about picking up sticks on the Sabbath was work, and that was prohibited. But we never really get a detailed list of things that are allowed or prohibited. We get some things. There's a principle involved here. Despite being commanded in the law, it is not a legalistic matter. It's a matter of heartfelt obedience, of pleasing of the Lord. It was, this day is set aside to the Lord and I will treat it circumspectly. In Leviticus and other places concerning the holy feast days, Israel is commanded to not do work that is 
specifically forbidden, such as servile or mechanical work, New King James puts it. And Leviticus chapter 23, verses 7 and 8, where he's uh, giving them commands concerning the feast of the Lord. And this is in the context of the feast of Passover in Leviticus 23, 7. He says, on the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So no customary work. In other words, don't work at your occupation. Don't labor. If you're a farmer, don't farm. Take the day off. If you're a merchant, don't merch. (laughs) Take the day off. The weekly Sabbath was to be entirely work-free, even to the point of building a fire. We find that in Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3. Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So you could build a fire, but you couldn't. Now you had to do that before the Sabbath story. You couldn't do it after the Sabbath story. In our passage, passage, Jesus says that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. God instituted it for the benefit of man, that man might have a time of rest and not be worn down by laboring continually. It was not given to bring men into bondage. The command is an enforced rest, a stoppage of energy depletion for a period of refreshing and recharging. Many men would not have done it unless God made it a command. And of course, many men didn't do it, even though God made it a command. When I was a child in the last century, <coughs> Way back in the last century, we had what were called blue laws in the state of Indiana. I don't know why they were called blue laws. You know, it seems like red laws stop, you know. (laughs) I'm sure there was a reason for it, and I didn't try to find out. Everything was closed on Sunday. Everything was closed on Sunday. This enforced rest was a misery for my family much of the time. We didn't attend church, and we couldn't shop. The only thing to do was watch television or some such activity, and we only had the three channels. I remember on Sunday afternoon many times watching the wide world of sports. You you would have the thrill of victory. I don't remember what was shown there, but the agony of defeat. I remember this guy going down a ski jump, and he falls, and he slides off his side and tumbles. Yeah, agony of defeat. You could go for a drive if you had gas in your car. That's where the term Sunday driver originated. No destination, just wandering and sightseeing, not in a hurry, meandering. Those were enjoyable times, you know, driving around. I'm sure this day was a blessing for those who believed in Jesus to have a day to set aside and honor and exalt him. But many people will not rest unless forced to do so. Well, the Pharisees object when Jesus' disciples plucked heads of wheat grain while passing the fields. may have been barley. depends on the time of year. Uh, They weren't objecting because of the activity. This was specifically allowed under the law of Moses. 
Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, uh, tells the Israelites, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. You weren't supposed to, you know, load up and take them home with you. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. This is what the disciples were doing. But you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You don't go in and start whacking things down and carrying them off. You carry off a sheaf to take home with you. Now, this was allowed as an act of charity to travelers and to the downtrodden. In fact, the farmers in Israel were not to fully harvest their fields or vineyards as an act of charity, a benefit to the poor and the stranger. In Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, he tells them, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Those things that fell to the ground, you weren't to go back and glean them and pick them up. They were left for the, for the poor. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This is another command for them. The basis of this command we find in later in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, where he says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So it wasn't that you just let things go, but you, you corrected, but you didn't hate. And then he says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the basis of leaving these gleanings in the corners of your field, loving your neighbor as yourself. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 22, he says, Even this, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. I mean, you know, am I going to forget a sheaf? <laughs> no, but, you know, I've got hundreds of sheaves out there. I gather them all up, and then later... I'm traveling through my property. Oh, there's a sheep I missed. You know, the older you get, the harder it is to count, keep count of your sheeps. How many there are? Sheaves, not sheeps. <laughs> but if you forgot one, you weren't to go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So this is the providence of the Lord making this available. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So anything that's not ripe enough to fall off is left to ripen for them. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So he's telling them, you've known hard times yourself. Be merciful to others who are going through hard times. Also, the poor were allowed to follow behind harvesters in the field and pick up gleanings that were left behind, dropped to the ground. We see this scenario played out with Ruth and Boaz, if you read the book of Ruth. Now, Boaz even tells his, his workers to drop some stuff on purpose, you know, so that she can pick it up. And we all know what's going on there. <laughs> so this objection of the Pharisees was not over what the disciples were doing, but solely based on when they were doing it. It was the Sabbath day. 
The Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath because they considered this harvesting grain. Technically, they were correct. They reaped the grain by plucking. They threshed the grain in their hand and blew away the chaff, which was winnowing. And they munched on the wheat, which was preparing food. So definitely, all these things were prohibited on the Sabbath by the Pharisees' law. And preparing food was prohibited even in, in the law. Each of these four acts is a work prohibited and each a separate violation. We'll see there are many separate violations. The Pharisees were very technical in their observances of the law, overly so, as it turns out. They had rules to protect the rules to protect the violation of the law. They felt... Pardon? <laughs> Some way. They had... Those rules, they felt this conviction not only for themselves, but sought to impose these technicalities upon everyone. They taught that only in this way could a person be righteous in God's sight. Now, Jesus addresses this near the end of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 23, he addresses these attitudes of some of the Pharisees. He says, in verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, you know, scriptures being attached to them, and enlarge the borders of their garments. You know, they were commanded to put tassels on their garments, so, you know, well, if God wants it, we'll make them broader, you know, so that we're really holy and we really stand out. So these guys kept the law in minuscule details that God did not command, but they were filled with religious pride because they did so. So they missed the greater command of God. Later in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, it says, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. They had this one all turned around backwards. The Pharisees excelled in self-exaltation, something that God will not commend you for being great at. Then in, later in verses 23 and 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and he's got... You know, I don't like seven woes here or something. You can count them later. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, these little bitty herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These things they weren't doing at all. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And then in verses 13 through 15, backing up a little bit, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. We don't want to shut the door to people who are trying to get to Jesus, you know, by our hypocrisy or by being uh, overly strict with certain things. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. When he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And there's much more in Matthew 23. You can read the whole thing. But we're in the beginning of the conflict in Mark chapter 2. Things are beginning to heat up, and the religious leaders will soon begin plotting how they might destroy Jesus. He is upsetting the legalistic apple cart and undermining their authority. God's requirements for his people were much simpler than the Pharisees perceived. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, a song, basis of a song that we sing, Micah writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And all these things are answered in the negative. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? These are the things the Pharisees were neglecting. So in this field, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, but he answers their question with a question, something that he often did. Haven't you read what David did? He responds to them by citing the case of David and his men when he fled from Saul. He came to the tabernacle at Nob looking for supplies, and the only bread on hand was the consecrated bread, the show bread. Only for priests and family. The priests gave the bread to David and his men and also gave David the sword of Goliath. And Jesus emphasizes that David was in need and hungry. It seems that human necessity trumped the legal technicalities. There was to be no violation of the strictness of the law for mere convenience or neglect, but a situation of dire necessity was sufficient to temporarily set aside the letter of the law. Once again, it's a heart matter. Over and over under the law or grace, God looks upon the heart and not the outward appearance. One could look great on the outside and be guilty before God, or look questionable on the outside, but be pleasing to God in the heart. Even the Pharisees agreed with this if it was their own necessity. Jesus asked them in Matthew 12:11 and 12, he says to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This was a big argument. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath if it's defined as work? The principle that Jesus sets forth for Sabbath rules is man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Man is of the greater value, greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to serve man. This day of rest is for the benefit of man. Indeed, all the law is given for the benefit of man. It's the best way for man to live and a source of blessing. But, of course, man falls short and needs another path to pleasing God. Using God's law to bring or perpetuate harm to a man is vile, even unlawful. For there is a higher law that must be observed. Even under Indiana's blue laws, the emergency services did not shut down. Police, ambulance, and fire departments were still working. Oh, there's a fire. I'm sorry we can't come. We're closed. 
They were available in case human need arose that could not be delayed. G. Campbell Morgan says, any application of the Sabbath law which operates to the detriment of man is out of harmony with God's purpose. Finally, Jesus says something that would again shock them and blow their minds. He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. What? Jesus is saying he's Lord of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was given by the commandment of God. Only God could say that he's Lord over the Sabbath commandment. But Jesus claims this for himself. No mere man can say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. No prophet could say it. Not Noah, Daniel, or Job. God singles these three out. It's special in Ezekiel 14, 14. Even if they stood before me, they could only deliver themselves. David couldn't do it. Isaiah or Jeremiah. Not Abraham or his descendants. But Jesus says it. This would enrage those who were beginning to oppose Jesus. Despite his miracles, which were specifically signs of the Messiah given in prophecy, despite the timing that they should have been aware of from Daniel 9, that the Messiah should have arrived, and he did, despite this, they did not believe. Well, if we move on to chapter 3, it continues this same theme, the Sabbath conflict. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And one commented, it was as if a man could fly, but the authorities wanted to know if he had a pilot's license. Look, they knew he could do it. They're waiting to see if he does do it. They knew he could do it. They're only waiting to see if he will so that they can accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Who, me? (laughs) Jesus sets the stage. He seems to revel in violating men's traditions and their fleshly interpretations of the law. And he says to them, so here's this guy standing here right in front of him. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. It's always lawful to do good. But they say, no, it's not good to do good on the Sabbath if it involves work. Complying with their Sabbath rules was more important than doing good. And that's bad. And when he looked around at them with anger, this is, you know, you don't read a lot of times of Jesus being angry, but he's angry about this. Why was he angry? Being grieved by the hardness of their heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. This is what he wasn't able to do. He couldn't stretch out his hand. It was all withered. But if the Lord commands something, he will also enable us to obey that command. And so then it says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Um just as Herod and Pilate were normally enemies, but they became friends at the trial of Jesus. Uh, These Herodians and Pharisees, who would normally be enemies, were united in seeking to destroy Jesus. Jesus unites people. He either unites them as for him, or he unites them as against him. So healing is work according to the Pharisees. Will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? 
There's an event in Luke 13, verses 14 through 17, about a woman who's bent over with infirmity. It says in verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Doctor's office should be closed. And the Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Hey, Jesus, we're not saying you shouldn't heal people. Just don't break the Sabbath by doing healing work on the day of rest. But they took care of their own animals on the Sabbath, which was the right thing to do. They fed their chickens and their livestock. They certainly helped them if they were in need of rescue. These were and are legalistic rules, not God's rules, regarding healing on the Sabbath. The Jewish Talmud, their law in addition to the scriptures, has it this way. In regards to healing on the Sabbath, a person could be medically tended to if there were danger to that person's life. Otherwise, it would have to wait. Now, certain external bodily ailments were not considered dangerous, however many internal ones were. Another interesting twist is that a person using such external remedies, such as cotton in the ear, may place it there and leave it before the Sabbath begins. But once the Sabbath has started, one cannot put it in. That's work. Healing work. And if it falls out on the Sabbath, it would not be allowable to put another in. The canon was that on the Sabbath, no healing was to be done except to prevent death. A person could also apply such medical attention so as to keep a wound from getting worse, but not so much as to help it get better. We got a fine line here. What do you get? According to their Sabbath traditions, if you cut your finger, you could stop the bleeding, but you could not put an ointment on the cut. That would promote healing. That's work. You could stop it from getting worse, but you weren't allowed to make it better. Thus, a plaster, this was English, so, you know, bandage might be worn, provided its object was to prevent the wound from getting worse, not to heal it, for that would have been work. If a bone were broken and sticking through the skin, the bone could be set on the Sabbath. But if not, it would have to wait until the Sabbath ended. I see you got a bad break there. We'll come back tomorrow. (laughs) Christians are amateurs when it comes to legalism in comparing with this, but... uh, Christians' legalism is no less pleasing to God than the Pharisees. Generally, bones may not be set, nor anything given to induce vomiting, nor any medical or surgical operation performed unless a life is at risk. There was an extreme example in the Talmud. It says, if a wall fell on a man on the Sabbath and it was doubtful whether he was still alive, you could clear away the rubble in order to find the body. If the man was still alive, he could be pulled out from the rubble But if he were dead, they would have to leave him there until after the Sabbath. If you got a splinter in your eye, you could take it out. I don't know why the splinter in the eye may be a Pharisee one time had a splinter in his eye. (laughs) 
You could perform circumcision to keep the law of, you know, on the eighth day, even though if that was breaking the law of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus says in another place that priests served on the Sabbath without sin. I mean, there were sacrifices going on all the time, and the priests would work, uh, but they weren't guilty of sin. Jesus said at one point to his, my, or to his enemies, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. He rested on the seventh day. He is not resting. He rested that day from creation, and he's been working since. And Jesus was working. A woman could deliver a child. He didn't have to hold it until, you know, the, after the Sabbath. Uh, and a midwife was allowed to attend to the woman. It's not like, don't push, don't push. Uh, in regard to helping an animal, if an animal could be sustained in the present predicament, it should stay there until the Sabbath was over. If sure death would occur, then uh, they could profane the Sabbath by taking positive action. Of course, the Pharisees were not going to risk the life of their own beast, but they were not so lenient when a person was suffering. We are told that Jesus was angry at their hardness of heart in denying healing of the man's hand or arm on the Sabbath. Hardness of heart perpetuates human suffering. Why wait a day when the power of God was present to heal? Is it lawful to do good or ill on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? The Pharisees would say it's allowable to save a life, but this is just a hand. There's no need for drastic action at this point. There were elaborate rules and analysis over the definition of work, and it was often ridiculously meaningless to the uninitiated. It has been said that modern Jewish Sabbath keeping is so complex that it's nearly impossible to know if you're violating the commandment, even with nearly exhaustive knowledge of the rules. Some things are argued over endlessly, whether it's allowed or not allowed. Concerning Sabbath observance, the Mishnah, which is the main text of the Talmud, lists 39 primary kinds of labor that were not allowed on the Sabbath day. The first 11 of these were steps leading to the production and preparation of bread. They were sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking. All those were, you know, because couldn't prepare food on the Sabbath. The next 12 apply to similar steps in the preparation of clothing. Uh, these are followed by seven steps in preparing the carcass of a deer for use as food or for leather. And then the remaining items listed have to do with riding, building, kindling, and extinguishing of fires. And also they deal with the transportation of articles from one place to another. The transportation of articles, that is carrying items, could only be done within a private domain. You couldn't take it from a private domain into a public domain. If it was transported in a public domain, then a limit of four cubits or six feet was allowed. Examples of this prohibition include carrying an item in one's pocket, carrying anything in the hand, wheeling a baby carriage or a shopping cart, going outside with gum or food in the mouth. You're going into a public place and you're carrying something. In addition, a Sabbath burden uh, was the weight of a dried fig. If a person were to twice lift the weight of half a dried fig so as to transport it from one place to another and thus combining the action into one, that would also constitute a sin and a Sabbath desecration. Ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand across his chest or on his shoulder. But you could carry something with the back of your hand 
with your foot, with your elbow, or in your ear, your hair, or the hem of your shirt, or your shoe, or your sandal. Moving anything with your hand, even indirectly, for example, with a broom, is forbidden. You could move things with your elbow or your breath, but not with your hand. Items may be moved in a very awkward, unusual manner with the other parts of the body, the teeth, the elbow, or by blowing on something. So similar difficulties were discussed as to the guilt in the case where an object was thrown from a private into a public place or the reverse. Whether if an object was thrown into the air with the left and caught again in the right hand, this involves sin. Says that was a nice question, though there could be no doubt a man incurred guilt if he caught it with the same hand with which it had been thrown. But he was not guilty if he caught it in his mouth, since after being eaten, the object no longer existed, and hence catching with the mouth was as if it had been done by a second person. You want to remember this when we go to lunch and you toss an olive in the air to catch it in your mouth. And regarding the problem of transporting between a private and a public space, there is a device called an eruv. An eruv is a technical boundary that allows Jews to carry in public areas on the Sabbath. The Jewish community in some cities or neighborhoods constructs an eruv, which encloses several blocks. Well, they enclose this neighborhood, basically. The area within the eruv is then considered a private domain where carrying is permitted. Well, you can do anything in that space. If there is an eruv, it's important to know its boundaries so as not to carry beyond them and also to ensure before Shabbat that the eruv is up and not damaged. You get a hole in the eruv and you're guilty. So you can begin to see how such extreme rules would be very frustrating for people. It would make them feel unable to please God at all and would create the impression that man was made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. A Sabbath day's journey is limited to 2,000 cubits, so the synagogue should be nearby. But if you were to place two meals 2,000 cubits away from home before the Sabbath day, say in a tent, then this becomes part of your dwelling and extends your travel to another 2,000 cubits from there. Or you could run a rope from your door 2,000 cubits away. You would need to carefully plan the direction that you're wanting to go in. The Pharisees' Sabbath restrictions forbade the following activities. Writing, you couldn't write two or more letters. Erasing, you couldn't erase two or more letters. Although to scratch out a big letter leaving room for two small ones would be a sin, but to write one big letter occupying the room of two small letters was no sin. To change one letter into another might imply a double sin, and so on through endless details. You could not tear something. Conduct business transactions, of course, shopping, cooking, baking, kindling a fire, gardening, doing laundry, carrying anything for more than six feet in a public space. You could not eat an egg which was laid on the Sabbath, for that was not specifically prepared for eating on the Sabbath. But if the chicken were set aside as Sabbath food and it laid an egg, you could then eat the egg because it was simply part of the chicken that had fallen off. There were five types of interdictions laid down by the Jews, those specifically forbidden in the Scriptures, those supposedly forbidden in the Scriptures. So, they, You know, they could stop with that first one, things specifically forbidden in the Scriptures. But uh, those supposedly forbidden in the Scriptures. Third, things forbidden because they might lead to a transgression of the biblical command. 
forth actions that are similar to the kinds of labor supposed to be forbidden in the Bible. And fifth, actions that are regarded as incompatible with the honor due to the Sabbath. With modernity um, comes complications. It complicates the matter for Jewish Sabbath keepers. What constitutes work in an age of appliances and convenience? For example, in addition to actually kindling a fire, the prohibition against igniting also includes driving a car because you ignite with the starter and the spark. You're forbidden to turn on the light switch. Since the light bulb gives gives out both light and heat, it is halakhically, that is according to Jewish religious law, considered fire. You can't uh, operate a refrigerator or a car door if this causes a light to go on. There are many appliances whose use is forbidden irrespective of the fact that they are powered by electricity simply because they perform functions that are forbidden on the Sabbath. For example, stoves and microwave ovens involve the melacha, that's prohibition, of cooking and baking, therefore forbidden to turn on or adjust the temperature of these appliances. Turning off a light bulb is considered extinguishing, so you're not allowed to do that. Running the hot water tap is forbidden on Shabbat, as this causes cold water to enter the hot water tank, and this water is turned in turn is heated by the hot water that is already in the tank. This is considered cooking. Operating a printer would involve the uh, prohibition of writing. It's also forbidden to operate appliances that require electricity, even though they do not involve any specific type of prohibition. Some examples are electric fans, clocks, or CD players. The operation of these electrical appliances is forbidden on the Sabbath. All meal preparation is done the day before the Sabbath so that cooking is not an issue. Lights which will be needed on the Sabbath are turned on before Sabbath. So you just leave them on. Automatic timers may be used for lights and some appliances as long as they've been set before the Sabbath. The refrigerator may be used, but again, we have to ensure that its use does not engender any of the forbidden Sabbath activities. Thus, the fridge light should be disconnected before Sabbath by unscrewing the bulb slightly, and a freezer whose fan is activated when the door is open may not be used. And remember, as a Sabbath keeper, you're doing this so that you may be righteous. Using elevators can be a problem, causing you to sin. Uh, They say it may be permissible to enter certain elevators on Shabbat. This might be permitted if... First, the elevator was programmed before Sabbath to stop at each floor. So some places in Jewish neighborhoods, you'll find elevators that are, you know, one day a week, they'll stop on every floor up and down so you don't have to push any buttons or open any doors, anything like that. Uh, It might be allowed if entering it will not cause a closing door to open. So if you're going for an elevator and the door's starting to close and you, you can't stop the door, to enter the elevator. Some authorities permit this in uh, in only a hydraulic elevator, while others permit it even in an elevator with a pulley system. In an elevator with a pulley system, some permit using the some permit the uh, using the elevator to go up but not down. Please note that many modern elevators have a built-in scale which automatically weighs the passengers as they enter. I didn't know that. 
You go, you know, you got a weight limit in the elevator, so when you step in, it's it's adding up the passengers. Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Halperin, the head of the Institute for Science and Halacha in Jerusalem, says that such an elevator may not be used on the Sabbath. Can't do that way and through. For the above reasons, it's not sufficient to program a regular elevator to simply stop at every floor to enable its use on Sabbath. Rather, one must find out the specifics of the elevator and discuss its use with a competent uh, halakhic authority, somebody who's uh, expert in Jewish law. And then some authorities maintain one may not use elevators under any circumstances. That'd be tough if you're living, you know. That's a lot of work to go up, you know, 15 flights of stairs. <laughs> That's work. So one who needs a hearing aid may use it on the Sabbath, provided that he leaves it on from before the Sabbath. There are different options regarding whether it's permitted to walk outside while wearing a hearing aid, or different opinions, sorry, regarding whether it's okay to walk outside because you're going in public space, a place that doesn't have any roof. So the use of a microphone is forbidden on the Sabbath, even if it was left on before the Sabbath. In cases of need, if there is no other entrance to a building that one must enter, one may follow a Gentile through an electric door if this will not cause the door to reopen. And he should not ask the Gentile to do this for him. The prohibition about tying a knot was much too general, and so it became necessary to state what kinds of knots were prohibited and what kind were not. And it was accordingly laid down that allowable knots were those that could be untied with one hand. If a person were in one place and his hand filled with fruit, stretched into another and the Sabbath overtook him in this attitude, he would have to drop the fruit. Since if he withdrew his full hand from one locality into another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Women are forbidden to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because they might discover a white hair and attempt to pull it out, which would be a grievous sin. That's a sin of, that's a sin of harvesting. A radish may be dipped in salt, but not left in it too long, for that might pickle it, and you weren't allowed to pickle things. A person could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath, lest they fall out, and that person be tempted to pick them up and carry them, which would be a burden. On the Sabbath, you could not climb a tree, ride, swim, clap your hands, strike your side, I don't know why you do that, or dance. It's easy to see how such restrictions could become very burdensome. And the Sabbath day, which was made for man, for man's good, could become resented and despised. This becomes a legalistic system by which I think I merit a righteous standing with God. But I'm merely in bondage to a set of strict rules that harm rather than benefit. Now, there are many Christian traditions that promote Sabbath keeping for the church. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and many still see it as normative for New Testament believers to keep, keep those Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments state that the law, or they state the law of God in a succinct manner, but the law and the Sabbath command in particular are part of the covenant of God with Israel. And you'll find that in Exodus 31. You can read verses 12 to 18. Specifically, this is the covenant with Israel. The church has no Sabbath requirement. We're told repeatedly in the New Testament that we are not under the law for righteousness, and this includes the Sabbath day observance. In Romans 6.14, we're told, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
who recently completed the book of Galatians, God's treatise against legalism and righteousness by law-keeping. It cannot produce godliness. But the sacrifice of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit brings God's power for holy living. Keeping the law is not the way. Paul says if there was a law that could have brought righteousness, then it would have been done. You know, that's the way God would have done it. But it's impossible. So we're totally separated from the law for righteousness, empowered by the Holy Spirit for righteous living. That's the way that God has ordained. So we have this new way. God has done a new thing in establishing the church. Romans 8, 3, and 4. We've read these numerous times recently. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in verse uh, Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, You have not received the spirit of adoption again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that if we suffer with Him, we may also be glorified together. Some insist that the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day or Sunday, There's no scriptural evidence for this. True, the earliest church met and worshipped Jesus on the first day of the week. But this does not make it the Sabbath. The church has no Sabbath commandment and there is no condemnation for Sabbath breaking. Christians who observe the Saturday Sabbath and do not worship on Sunday miss out on the significance of the first day of the week when Jesus was raised from the dead. From the beginning, the church met and worshipped on Sunday. That day is infinitely greater than the seventh day. Ignatius in 69 AD said the church did not maintain Sabbath, but the eighth day, the day Christ rose from the dead because we rose with him. You know, in the beginning, Sunday was the first day of the week. And Saturday, the seventh day, you know, the Sabbath day. But... With the resurrection, it's like a new beginning. And so it's referred to in some writings as the eighth day. Athanasius in the second century said the seventh day is a memorial of the old creation. The eighth day is a memorial of the new creation. And then in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, we find Paul writing to them and saying, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. This Sabbath rest, we'll see there's a rest that we're to enter into. It's a spiritual rest, not a physical rest. Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, it says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He, does not, he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. One is free to observe a formal Sabbath, but it's not required. The root word for Sabbath refers to rest, 
Although we are not required to observe a formal Sabbath, we do need times of rest. The Sabbath, or rest, was made for man. In the beginning, before the fall, man would have had no need for rest. But after the fall, in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You know, he was created, placed in the garden before the fall to tend and keep it. But there wasn't any toil involved in that tending and keeping. There wasn't any, well, it, it tells here, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It is wise to rest in the spirit of the Sabbath. Rest is necessary for man. And that is why God commanded his national people to rest one day a week. This time of rest is also needed so that man might have a time to spend in a special way with his God. We need to spend time communing with the Lord, resting in him, and allowing him to renew our strength both physically and spiritually. Some take a time of devotion. This should be a time of communion with the Lord. Some do it in the morning. Some do it in the evening. Some do it morning and evening, some at other times. But without this rest, one will become spiritually weak, even if he rests physically. Jesus called his disciples away to rest. They were not always successful. Usually weren't successful because the crowds continued to follow. But our times of rest should be interruptible by the Lord as he directs our steps. We serve and obey at his pleasure. Let's not neglect the rest he provides so that we might be useful and not depleted of our resources of energy. The high Sabbath for the believer is a Sabbath from works of righteousness and resting in his work of redemption for our eternal welfare and the present service to the Lord in this world. He is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, 8 through 11, he says, If Joshua had given them rest, That's the same name uh, in the Old Testament for Jesus. Then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. This is speaking of uh, Joshua in the Old Testament. He said, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Ceasing from those works of uh, religiousness, of righteousness, trying to be righteous. He says, then let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let's not neglect the bodily rest we need, but even more so the spiritual rest that the Lord provides as we repose in him. Let's not try to obtain the righteousness that Jesus has already attained for us. In Acts 3.19, Peter preaching says, repent therefore. Be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Lord wants us to experience those times of refreshing from resting in his presence. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest.